Downtown hotels avert a work stoppage with a three-year labor deal. And I'll talk with Crane's reporter Brandon Dupre about the latest in the scandal at Northwestern. And the school is trying to build a brand new stadium. And their athletic department is, you know, it's on fire right now. And so it, it seems at odds to be pursuing this. And, you know, we'll see what else happens because I, I guarantee you there's going to be more lawsuits to come. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, August 21st. Want some wins? Wintrust Community Banks is proud to be ranked number one in customer satisfaction in personal banking in Illinois by J.D. Power. That's one win, and that's for the second year in a row. That's a win-win. And you can now earn even more interest with Wintrust's new savings rates. That's a win-win-win. To get your savings some wins, visit Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. That's Wintrust.com slash LockNewRates. Members FDIC. For J.D. Power 2020. Award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. I'm joined by Crane's reporter, Brandon Dupre, here to talk about the hazing and abuse scandal that's come out of the Northwestern football program. So when we first talked about this, Brandon, it, it, it was much smaller than it is now. And in a very short amount of time, it has grown quickly. Other lawsuits have been filed so so catch us up. Let's see. When we last talked, I think maybe the second lawsuit was filed and we we were starting to hear from former players, but so much has happened since. So so what is just the latest with Northwestern? Well, uh, more lawsuits have been filed. It exceeds 10. There's now four different law firms involved and it seems unending at this point, at least the scale and the scope of these lawsuits and how far they'll go. One thing I think is really, uh, I mean, there's so many things that are compelling about this, but but one is that what started in the football program has expanded to other areas of the athletics department. Yeah, it broke with Northwestern University students reporting on the football hazing scandal, and it has snowballed since then. There's been lawsuits filed on behalf of former volleyball players, lacrosse player now. Um, we have baseball staffers and, you know, those are just the suits that have been filed. Speaking to some of the attorneys, there's more to come from other departments. I've heard uh, men's soccer. Um, I've heard softball. So really, we don't exactly know when it will end, but it seems to be very deep and widespread. Yeah. And and so... More recently, we started hearing from current players, and that seems like a, a pivot point in that. And a, a, the difference of hearing from uh, former players versus current, that the stakes seem a little bit different there. Tell me about that. Yeah, so we heard for the first time current Northwestern football players. They held a, a press conference. It was a makeup um, press conference. They had missed the Big Ten Media Day, which is you know, a big conference when the players come, the coaches come and, you know, they celebrate football coming back. Um, the players didn't want to be a distraction, so they decided not to come. This was the first time that Northwestern made current football players available to speak to the media. So, you know, it was the first time we'd all hear them publicly. The press conference, however, was overshadowed by what took place earlier on the practice field that day. It was also the first time the media was made available to watch Northwestern football practice. And what people noticed is 
current coaches and staffers were seen wearing shirts that read cats against the world emblazoned uh, across the front. And then it also had um, Pat Fitzgerald, the former coach. It had his old Jersey number on the front 51, which is the number he wore while playing at Northwestern. Which seems like a really strange move when that broke on social media. It seemed like what, you know, I think a lot of people were sort of questioning what, what is the purpose of doing this? Is it a show of solidarity with Fitzgerald? If so, that's kind of deviating from this other narrative that has emerged from the athletics department. What were people saying about that? Yeah, I mean, that broke right before the press conference and the reporters in the room, we all asked those same questions. Um, you know, we asked, does it not seem tone deaf to you know, be doing this in light of the allegations? The players said that the shirts were a reminder of sticking together through this difficult time and just leaning on each other was the quote. And then the interim head coach um, who's come in his response was that he can't censor someone's free speech and that, you know, the coaches, I guess, can can sort of do what they want. But, you know, this is at odds of what we've heard from the administration. I mean, they're under investigation. Um, Loretta Lynch has come in to look into the culture at Northwestern. Right. And what was also surprising is that um, the athletic director was unaware of these shirts being worn. Later reporting came out. This wasn't the first time that they wore these shirts. It's been ongoing. I don't know exactly how long, but, you know, promptly following the press conference, the Northwestern athletic director, uh, he released a statement, you know, saying he was extremely disappointed with the the choice of those coaches and staff staffers to wear the, the shirts. And uh, he called them inappropriate, offensive and tone deaf. Hmm. So, yeah, in a press conference that the, the players didn't comment on Pat Fitzgerald, you know, really, um, it was loud and clear, you know, on the field that, you know, they were still sort of in solidarity with their coach in a lot of ways. Yeah. I don't even I don't even have a follow question on that. It just seems so shocking when that happened. I, I can't imagine um, that day in in the Northwestern Communications Department. I'm sure they were like, "Well, <laughs> this just got more complicated." Yeah, I, I, yeah, and and I, it, what was also surprising is that you know that what's going on within the football program is you know is not communicated to, or the administration seems to always be caught flat footed. Yeah. by what's going on. And right. I guess in, in many ways, this seems um, we shouldn't be surprised, I guess, from the lawsuits and what came out that this is, but it's just, yeah, it sort of boggles the mind at this point that after these allegations and suits have come out that you would think they would get a control on somewhat of what's going on. And Yeah. And when we talked before, there was movement among faculty members to release the internal investigation that that Northwestern had initially done when Pat Fitzgerald was just first suspended for a couple of weeks before he was fired. And that seems like the crux of the thing of who knew what when. And that that seems like the very important part of this. Any movement there with with staff members pushing for the release of that investigation? Yeah. When this all this came out, the the hazing against the allegations and, and Pat Fitzgerald's firing, the faculty wrote letters to the school administration. It's it's believe it's signed by more than 200 faculty member at this point. And I last checked last week, so I, I imagine it's increased. And, and something to think about is that this is also happening in the summertime. I've been told by some faculty members that if this was happening during the school year, when teachers are there, it, you know, it, it would be a lot more. Um, they, they've asked for um, releasing of the initial investigations, more information, 
they don't have much. Some people are hoping that the investigation by Loretta Lynch, which they said will be made public, which the school's other internal investigations have not. There's some hope there, but I think for me, at least, it seems like the most will come out as these lawsuits sort of gain some traction in the courts and discovery process will be ongoing. And I think we'll see more implications about who is involved. But until then, um, the lawsuits are still coming down, including an explosive one that landed um, last week. And that was just the following day, I believe, after the uh, after the shirts thing happened. Sure. Yeah. So I was on campus on Evanston that Wednesday. And then the next day, um, the most graphic and explosive lawsuit, I would say, thus far was filed on behalf of a woman's lacrosse player. Um, And she filed it against Northwestern. And she's also a current student. So this is um, another current student at Northwestern referred to as Jane Doe in in the complaint. She's suing the school for negligently allowing another athlete, a current baseball player with a known history of sexual assault allegations to enroll at the school and then failing to properly investigate when she reported that she was sexually assaulted by this player. The lawsuit goes into sort of the details. They are graphic. And in the lawsuit, it details that before this this player, this current baseball player arrived on campus, um, the school administration were made aware of previous, um, you know, inappropriate sexual contact that occurred at high school. Um, there were letters and social media posts sort of directed at um, uh, Northwestern uh, administration, sort of detailing that, you know, inappropriate behavior happened in high school. And to be aware of this player, and think they asked to, you know, rescind his scholarship. He was on a scholarship. The, the lawsuit goes on to say that because this school failed to sort of listen to these complaints and follow through, that they allowed, you know, what would follow, which is this sexual assault on the former lacrosse player. And it, again, that's a, a graphic lawsuit. The, the details in it are, are quite graphic. That seems like a different layer of things. What did that do in the conversation that you were hearing from from people at Northwestern? It's you know it's ratcheting up the sort of scale of the yeah. allegations here. Um, this is the first one that's really detailed. There's been other details, but I, I mean nothing as graphic as this. Um, yeah. And sort of implicating the school for, um, you know, failing to respond to, um, you know, um, serious allegations against the player. And and, and just reiterate, he, he's still on the team. Um, and he was um, given a scholarship when he came in. Yeah. And ha- have, has there been any comment from him or from counsel? From no, his counsel? no. The school says that um, it's currently still under investigation. Uh, Mm-hmm. And they're still looking into it. But outside of that, that's yeah. all we've heard. Right. You know? And then Monday, there was the first lawsuit filed by staff members, which is feels like another pivot, another kind of important milestone in, in this entire story. Yeah. So up, to, up until now, the lawsuits have all been um, on behalf of either current or former students. Um, this is the first time former staffers employed by the school have been involved you know, shortly after the hazing allegations against the football team and the firing of Pat Fitzgerald happened, there were media reports that um, their baseball coach, Jim Foster, was under investigation by the school for HR violations, which included bullying, 
um, and other abuses. Um, so this lawsuit sort of hits at um, the school failing again to properly respond to complaints, complaints about um, this former head coach's behavior, his abuses, his his bullying. Um, and, you know, what's also striking here is that the complaint um, in this lawsuit goes on to say that um, the school didn't do anything. They sort of sat on their hands. They let this continue to happen. And the um, three staffers who made these behaviors aware to the administration were later let go. And so, again, you know, it's another lawsuit detailing the sort of um, at times negligence by the school. So this accusation of, of of negligence by the school, as that narrative mounts, what might that mean for Michael Schill? There was already a little bit of heat on him, just the way he handled the initial suspension of Pat Fitzgerald for two weeks and then later fired him. As discovery happens, as it is more established, who knew what when, Michael Schill is still a fairly new president, having taken over from Morton Shapiro, might this have an implication for him? It's tough to say because he's so new. Um, yeah. I think what we'll be watching is how he responds. What are his moves to sort of get a hold of this mess? And I think something to watch as these lawsuits move forward, as discovery process takes place is, you know, um, even before she'll arrived, these were happening. Who knew what? The former president, Morgan Shapiro, did he know um, who else is implicated? And, you know, what's the board of trustees influence on the sports here? Um, there's been a big push by um, alumni board of trustees to, you know, push Northwestern into the forefront of Big Ten sports. It's there's money there. And, and you know, and you don't you don't want to say that, you know, it, because there's money there, you know, this is the result. But there is a there is a push um, and the school is trying to build a brand new stadium and their athletic department is, you know, it's on fire right now. And so it it seems at odds to be pursuing this. And, you know, we'll see what else happens, because I, I guarantee you there's going to be more lawsuits to come. Yeah, yeah. The only question will be, you know, how far did this go? How many departments have been implicated and who exactly knew what? Exactly. And that stadium, there questions were sort of looming around that. And there was some pressure to hit pause on that revamp, not only from internal stakeholders at Northwestern, but by community members who live near it in Evanston. Uh, what is the latest there on that on the stadium redesign? Yeah, it's the uh, Land Use Commission is going to give their recommendations to uh, the city council in Evanston. It was tentatively set for the end of this month, but what's come out is that Wilmette has recently passed a resolution saying that, you know, they don't want the stadium as currently constituted. Um, their main complaint was that the new stadium proposes for up to 10 summer concerts. And like I've heard from Evanston residents, the Wilmette Village leaders said they have concerns about the for-profit commercialization of the, the stadium project and how it will you know, impact their roads, their safety, um, et cetera. And so you know, that does continue to mount. And then once the Land Use Commission gives their recommendation to council, it'll be up to the council which, as I understand it right now, it seems very divided on the issue. 
and it may end up becoming to Mayor Biss's decision to decide one way or the other. So there's still a lot of moving parts here, but it is something I will have a close eye on. Yeah, it's something that's uh, certainly keeping you busy. There are, in fact, a lot of moving parts to this whole story. And so do you have a sense of the timeline for when uh, these lawsuits might start moving forward, when we might get into that discovery phase? You know what? It's really anyone's guess at this point. I would imagine, you know, maybe towards the end of the year, in the next couple of months, more things will start coming out. But again, these law firms right now are, they're still filing lawsuits. So you know, <laughs> I think it really remains to be seen. Indeed. Well, we will keep turning to you for the latest. Thanks so much for swinging through and talking it over today. Of course. Thanks for having me. Coming up, a new report challenges the narrative that Chicagoans are eagerly fleeing the city. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Do you know a leader, a visionary, an influencer, an innovator? Do you know a Titan? Join the ranks of Chicago's Titan 100, a new exclusive community for C-suite executives. Stand up and be recognized and tap into the power of a growing national network. Learn more, nominate someone, or apply today at whipfleecom slash Chicago Titan. That's WIPFLI.com slash Chicago Titan. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that big downtown hotels struck a deal with union leaders to avert a work stoppage, a critical agreement for the city's hospitality sector as it continues its recovery from impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Ecker reported that labor union Unite Here Local One announced its members ratified a new three-year collective bargaining agreement with major downtown hotels. The new contract, which will govern large hotels in the heart of the city managed by top brands Marriott, Hilton and Hyatt, comes two weeks before the previous labor agreement was due to expire. The announcement didn't say how many hotels would be covered by the new contract terms, but it's likely the new agreement will be in place for more than two dozen of the city's most prominent hotels. Labor analysts said the union entered contract talks earlier this year negotiating from a position of strength because many hotels are still struggling to find enough workers for housekeeping and other service-related jobs. Hotel owners have seen their bottom lines improve dramatically since the depths of the pandemic, but many are still struggling to return to pre-pandemic levels of business. Ecker noted that the New Deal requires that hotels clean guest rooms every day, a point of contention for some properties after guests in many hotels became accustomed during the pandemic to rooms that were not cleaned every day for public health reasons. Minimum wages for non-tipped hotel workers will be $25 an hour, according to Unite Here, up from $23 an hour under the current deal. The union's statement said the new contract also preserves workers' health care coverage and strengthens their pensions. The new labor deal comes roughly a year before Chicago is set to host the 2024 Democratic National Convention, an event that will put a global spotlight on the city and could help reestablish Chicago's reputation as a top destination for tourists and major conventions and trade shows. Ecker also reported that downtown hotels are starting to close out a strong summer that was buoyed by major events, including Taylor Swift concerts at Soldier Field, a NASCAR street race around Grant Park and Lollapalooza. Revenue per available room at downtown hotels in June, which is a key metric that accounts for both occupancy and room rates, averaged close to $233, according to hospitality data and analytics firm STR. 
That topped the $228 average in July of 2019 and marked just the fourth month since the pandemic began, where that metric exceeded the comparable 2019 figure. Bloomberg reported that Deere & Company lifted its financial outlook for the year as machinery demand for farmers remained robust despite slumping crop prices. The world's top agricultural equipment producer expects net income for fiscal year 2023 between $9.75 billion and $10 billion. That according to a statement on Friday from the Moline-based company. That's above the outlook in May for $9.25 billion to $9.5 billion and it compares to the Bloomberg consensus for about $9.4 billion. Reporting pointed out that farmers have been paying up for the iconic green and yellow tractors in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which sent global crop prices surging. While expanding harvests in the U.S., Brazil, and Russia are cooling crop markets, large-scale farmers are continuing to upgrade to newer and more technologically advanced equipment. CEO John May said in a statement, quote, fundamentals are expected to continue fueling solid demand for our equipment, supported by a strong advance order position. Reporting from Bloomberg pointed out, however, that slumping grain prices and rising interest rates are clouding the outlook for farm equipment makers. Deere's rival, CNH Industrial, last month said it's limiting how much it's raising prices for machines given that farmer incomes are going down. Meanwhile, according to Bloomberg Intelligence, a recent slowdown in the sales of used agricultural equipment is also heightening concerns for a cycle peak for the sector. An affiliate of Ken Griffin's Citadel has acquired roughly $485 million in Yellow Corporation debt previously owned by Apollo Global Management and other senior lenders to the bankrupt trucking firm. That according to reporting from Bloomberg, citing a person familiar with the matter. The deal comes as Yellow reportedly seeks to secure a bankruptcy loan to fund its liquidation. Apollo and other senior lenders had offered to provide the company $142.5 million in new money to fund the trucking firm's winding down process, but Yellow was approached with less expensive options after filing Chapter 11. Bloomberg reported that Apollo and other existing Yellow lenders won't proceed with their proposed Chapter 11 loan as a result of the Citadel deal. An attorney for Yellow said recently that it's considering alternative bankruptcy loans from hedge fund MFN Partners, the company's largest shareholder, and rival trucking company Estes Express Lines. Counsel representing Citadel Credit Master Fund filed court papers Tuesday in Yellow's bankruptcy. Yellow has said the alternative bankruptcy loans it's considering are less expensive and will give the company more time to sell its valuable real estate portfolio and vast fleet of trucks and trailers. The Chapter 11 loan offered by funds managed by Apollo and other existing lenders carried 17 percent interest and higher fees. Crane's Jack Grieve reported that residents leaving Chicago in favor of other parts of the U.S. have long outnumbered those coming in. That imbalance reportedly skyrocketed during the earlier phases of the pandemic and remained in the red as people from across the country flocked to less expensive and less dense regions. But now that uptick has slowed and the city's rate of outward migration is nearing a full recovery, according to a recent report from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, which analyzed urban migration data from the U.S. since 2010. The study predicts that Chicago's net migration will be fully back on course with pre-pandemic trends within the next three to nine months. 
Grieve pointed out in reporting, however, that back on course doesn't mean migration is at a net positive or even an equilibrium. The city's domestic migration has been on an increasing decline for years, and recovery in this context simply means the city's rate of decline has slowed to pre-pandemic trend lines. Nonetheless, the data complicates a narrative that Chicagoans and other urbanites are leaving U.S. metro areas at a faster rate than in past years. A recent report from the U.S. Census Bureau shows that the city of Chicago saw its population decline by 75,000 residents from July of 2020 to July of 2022. Cook County lost 68,000 people last year alone, and coupled with big-name corporate departures like that of Citadel, Boeing, and Caterpillar, the narrative surrounding Chicago's population trends is one of decline. But the Fed report shows the rate at which people are leaving the city is now not all that out of the ordinary. Stephen D. Whitaker, a policy economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland and author of the report, said, quote, the numbers are not showing a faster outmigration for Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, adding, you can definitely see a pandemic impact, but in those cases, it's reversing pretty quickly. It's heading back to the trend line, if not the level, that it was at pre-pandemic. But Whitaker also noted that the reversal sets Chicago and those major U.S. cities apart from other urban areas where outward migration continues to get worse. Metros like Boston, Las Vegas, New Orleans, Phoenix, Portland, and Seattle are struggling with increasing exit rates that appear unwilling to give. But in Chicago, urban neighborhoods saw a net loss of approximately 6,900 residents to domestic migration during the first quarter of 2023, according to the report. That's roughly half the decline the city saw at the peak of the COVID pandemic and nearly on par with migration patterns that the city saw in 2017 and 2018. Grieve pointed out in reporting that the upward trend can at least in part be attributed to Chicago's relatively low housing costs. The report categorizes Chicago and its surrounding suburbs as an affordable large metro area and not one of the country's dozen high-cost regions where median housing prices exceed $200 per square foot. The city is also seen as something of a safe haven for reproductive health care and LGBTQ plus rights as other states across the country move in the opposite direction. And Grieve noted that climate change is another pull factor. The area has a natural immunity to wildfires and rising sea levels. Once a place people sought to escape because of the weather, the Midwest is now increasingly a destination for climate change migrants. Grieve also pointed out that it should be noted that domestic migration is just one of the many factors that determine overall population trends. Whitaker told Cranes, quote, Whenever we think about population change, there are three things that feed into it. Internal migration, domestic migration, and natural increase. In other words, urban centers can see their negative domestic migration offset by other factors, such as having a high birth rate or a strong international appeal. That means cities like Chicago are not going to see significant population decline as a result of their domestic outward migration trends, at least not at the current rate. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Brandon Dupre. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.